Our text this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and then a few verses in the New Testament. So we're going to be kind of all over the place, but you can turn to Genesis 1. That's where we'll, we'll be projecting on the screen in a few minutes. But I'd ask you to pray with me um, before we get started. Gracious Father, you are good, and your works are wondrous. You have made the entire universe with a word. Your words, when, when you speak, universes are created and chaos is brought into order. And we are amazed at that. We are stunned at your creative capacity, your infinite capacity to make. And we thank you that you have made us in your image and that we too in some way are creators and innovators and builders of things. And so as we reflect a little bit on work this morning, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to receive? Would, as the song said, your, uh, your word be open to us? Would it fill our hearts with truth? We come before you humbly, and we know that ultimately, Christ, you have worked on our behalf to bring us to the Father, to make us sons and daughters, so that our working to try to please you or earn something ceases. It's impossible. We can't do it. Jesus has worked for us. And so we do come to you at the same time resting in your approval, in your welcome, in your delight in us because of Jesus for his sake and for his glory. And so it's in his name that we come to you Amen. Amen. There was a church historian in the 3rd and 4th centuries, around the time of Constantine. His name was Eusebius. He was also a bishop. And one of the indelible marks that Eusebius left on the church was this idea that the Christian life has two kinds of callings. On the one hand, Eusebius said, there's the perfect life. The perfect life was that spiritual contemplative life that was reserved for priests and monks and nuns. This was, he said, above nature and beyond common human living. So that's the perfect life. On the other side, there was the permitted life. The permitted life was that kind of physical, kind of necessary life reserved for farmers, merchants, soldiers, even people raising families. And Eusebius said that these people have a kind of secondary grade of piety. And for 17 centuries, this dualistic approach to life has plagued the church. We have created, or Eusebius created, or whoever gets credit for it, a sacred and secular divide. Uh, Higher calling, lower calling. Varsity Christian, JV Christian. And now nobody, you wouldn't admit this, right? Uh, you would never say, you know, my pastor is living the perfect life. He's a walking slice of heaven on earth. 
At least those of you who know me really well would never say that. You, you wouldn't admit this. But it's so ingrained into our culture. It's so ingrained into our minds that with the words we use, we can't help but have it come out of us. Think about this. You might say, you know, she's going into full-time ministry as if there were part-time ministry. She might be paid for it, but is there part-time ministry? You might say, those missionaries, they're doing God's work as if a mom changing diapers is not doing God's work. Here's the thing. The Christian perspective on calling and work is holistic, robust, and profoundly empowering to everyone. Everyone. Whether you're little or big, whether you think you're important or not, whether you are paid to do ministry or unpaid during ministry. I mean, consider this. You, the average person, me, the average person, we work at least eight hours a day. At least. At least five days a week. That's a third of your life. If you work for 40 years, and most of us will work for more, actually, especially those in my generation, we'll probably be working 50, 60 years. If you worked 40 years, you would work 83,000 hours in your life. And so if that's true, which it is, if you live long enough, we had better have a God-glorifying, Christ-centered, biblical approach to work, to occupation, to what you do most of the day. So here's the summary point I'm going to make today. All work, when done to the glory of God, is sacred and beautiful because in our work we reflect the God who created us and redeems us. That's the main point. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to look at the sacredness of work. And then we'll look at Genesis 3 and what sin does to work. And then finally, we'll go to the New Testament, and we'll see how God meets our need and and what the Savior does to empower us to work. So turn with me to Genesis 1, or you can look at it on the screen. And we'll read this first. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, and then I'll throw in uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This is God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the bread of life, I have given every green plant. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then over to 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
So here's three points I'm going to make from this passage, just really briefly. There's a lot there, right? I mean, there's, that's foundational. I mean, one thing, as I was just preparing for this week, I, I ran across a, a little quote where a guy was talking about the New Testament doesn't have a very developed theology of creation. So that's, what, that's why this is so important. You have to know this. And there's oodles and oodles there. But here's three things. First thing, we're image bearers of God. We were made in the image and likeness of God. And that means more than anything else, some way you look like Him. And so you derive your identity from Him. Your worth, your significance, your value comes from being made in some way like God. You are unique in creation. There is nothing else in all the world like you, like me, like us. So our identity comes from being made in God's image. We are designed to mirror Him, to reflect Him in some way, in many ways. That's the first thing. We're image bearers of God. Number two, a result of being made in God's image is that we work. Is that we work. So Adam and Eve, made in God's image, and the first thing that they do they work. God says, here's what you do. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Have dominion over everything. Work. And why? Because God works. He is a creator. If we're made in His image, then we're going to do what He does. Right? So He creates, and here's the difference. He creates from nothing, and we create from something. Right? There, everything that you do, everything that you use on a daily basis is already made. And so what we do is we take what's been created and we bring it into order, organize it, we create something beautiful, something useful, and we image our Creator. We do what He does. We create. But, that's not where our identity comes from. Right? Our identity comes from being made in the image of God. And work is a product of that. Work is the, the necessary product of being made in God's image. Here's the third thing. Work is very good. You notice, after each day in Genesis 1, at the end of the day, what does it say? And God looked, and He saw, and He saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. But it wasn't until the sixth day, when He made man, that He gave human beings the charge to work and to have dominion and to subdue creation and to be creative and use their intelligence and their organizational skills and their, uh, their diligence. And then it says that God looked and he saw and behold it was what? Very good. Very good. You were made to work. It's very good to work. So here's how we could sum it up. We're God's image bearers in the world, designed to represent Him, to mirror Him, image Him in our work, any kind of work, and this is very good. It's a good thing. So let me ask you, have you tasted that at all? Have you created something or put something into order, like a budget, swept a floor, organized a pantry, built a bridge, worked on a submarine, changed the diaper, made a shirt, done anything 
built an iPad, built a website, and then you got done and you had this sense of, I was made to do this, because you were. You were made to work. Deep down, whether you admitted it or not, you were imaging your creator. You were reflecting him. Right? You could reflect God in many ways. And this is just the first way that in the garden, this is what Adam and Eve did. They worked. And so when we work, you have that sense of satisfaction. This is very good. Now the problem is we don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 kind of world. Right? We live in a post-Genesis 3 kind of world. So turn with me to Genesis 3 and we'll look at what sin does to work. Look at verses 16 through 19. This is right after Adam and Eve sinned and God is now speaking a word of judgment to them. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then skip down to verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam and Eve disobey, sin enters the world, and everything that was previously under their dominion, under God's dominion through them, is now cursed. Everything is broken. There's problems everywhere. And if you remember in the text what happens that right after they sinned, they ran from each other. They ran from God. Everything now is ruined. Sin has brought degradation to everything in the world, including work. Now work is hard. Now work is painful. Now it kills us. I mean, look at verse 19 again. Uh, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, until you return to the ground. You're going to work and work and work and work and work and then you're going to die. Like, that's, what's, that's what he's saying. You're going to work until it kills you. I mean, obviously we know it's sin that's brought about death, but he's saying the way you're going to remember that, here, here's the Genesis 3 reality you deal with. This is why when you, Genesis 3 is the reason why you plant a tree in your front yard and you hit a gas line. <laughs> Genesis 3 is the reason you need to trim the door 43 times before it shuts. I've done that. I've done the first one. Genesis 3 is the reason you send out resume after resume after resume after resume and you don't get a call back. Genesis 3 is the reason you go home on Friday and your body hurts or your heart is heavy or your mind hurts and then you wake up on Monday morning and you go, is this all there is? Isn't there more? I don't want to do it another day. That's why you're so happy you're off tomorrow. <laughs> Except for Daniel, because Union doesn't observe Labor Day, right? That's right. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, our country realized this at some point. That's why we have labor laws, right? Somebody at some point realized you can't work 70, 80, 90, 100 hours a week and live to tell about it. We realize work is painful, and it brings death. Whether or not you're a Christian, 
you realize this. So in a post-Genesis 3 kind of world, there's two uh, sinful extremes that we need to avoid as Christians. Here's the first one. The first extreme that we need to avoid is thinking that work is the curse. So a lot of us think that when sin entered the world and brought about degradation and death, work was walking right along with it. But the Bible is pretty clear that God created work before sin and that it was very good and that you and I were designed to work. So you may never admit this, I might never admit this, but if you've ever been lazy, like I have, if you've ever complained, then functionally you believed work is the curse doesn't mean it's hard. We can admit that. It's hard. It makes me sweat. It makes my hands hurt. It makes my heart heavy. Work is still good, but it is cursed. But it is not the curse. So that's the first extreme to avoid. The other extreme to avoid is to embrace the sweat and work, work, work to try to obtain your identity, worth, and significance, and meaning from work, right? So there's a lot of us who say, oh, no, work's not the curse. I love it, and I'm going to sweat myself to death until I find happiness. And I'm going to work, work, work until God loves me or my family loves me or somebody loves me. My boss appreciates me, right? And that's the other extreme. But we don't get our identity from work. As the scriptures are clear, you're made in God's image. And work is one way you show. So sin, what it does is it, it really gives us a, a kind of identity miscalibration. We're always looking for worth and significance from something. And for many of us, work is that thing that we go to often. So our flesh is always going to tempt us to these things. But as Christians, if we want to work Christianly, then we have to look to the Christ, the Messiah, right? If we want to avoid these and live and work in a radically different kind of way, different than the rest of the world, right? Most people in the world, if you talk to them, if they're not a Christian, they're going to be in one of these areas, right? They're going to think work is the curse, or they're going to think work is their identity. But Christ shows us a better way. So let's look at how the Savior empowers us to work, or you could say how he transforms our work. So God's answer to Genesis 3 took a while to develop, right? Have you ever thought why? Like, man, it took so long. Well, he's writing a story, right? Jesus comes thousands of years later, fulfilling what God had been doing for those thousands of years. And then Jesus saves us. He saves us by grace, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one might boast. And then he takes us to heaven right away. No. That was, you're, you're supposed to go, no. <laughs> Stupid preacher. He doesn't. Have you ever wondered why? Like, why doesn't God just save you and then take you to heaven right away? Greg mentioned it, it almost in passing last week in his sermon. What did he say? You weren't created or you weren't saved by works, but you were saved for. You were saved for works. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, it says that you are God's workmanship. Or you could say masterpiece. You're little new creations, created to do what? Work. Good works. 
Just like Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are made in God's image. And God says, work. And so now, Jesus saves us by grace, through faith, and what he has done, not what we do. We are his little masterpieces, his new creations, who are charged with what? Good works. And don't you think, what you do, eight, nine, ten hours a day, five, six, maybe sometimes seven days a week, unfortunately, when it's necessary. Don't you think that would be included in the good works you were created to do? Good works are not just churchy things. They're not just ministry things. They're not just moral things. It's everything. Because when Jesus saves you, he becomes your Lord. He becomes your master. He becomes your king. And so everything is under his dominion, just like at the beginning when God made Adam and Eve. And then, just as God looked at Adam and Eve, so Christ looks at you and he says, now, with your work, with what you do, you exercise my dominion in whatever sector of the world you are in. Jesus is Lord of everything. All creation. And so we go out as his representatives in the world, exercising dominion and saying, Christ is king over me and he's king right here. Playing guitar. Working security. Working in the medical industry. Being a pastor. Christ is king. And you and I were made to do good works. Oz Guinness is an English uh, sociologist. And yes, he is the great-great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the guy who made the beer. Oz Guinness said, when God says to us in Jesus, follow me, everything we are, everything we do, everything we have are given a special devotion, dynamism, and direction as a response to his summons and service. So everything changes when Jesus becomes your Lord, especially your work. So when Jesus says, follow me, he also empowers your work. He changes. He transforms your work. Here's two ways he does it. Here's the first thing. Jesus gives us a new purpose in our work. Colossians 3. You're familiar with this passage. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Jesus changes the purpose of your work. So you don't become lazy. You don't shirk your duties. And you don't search for meaning and significance in your work. Now you offer up your work to God as praise. You know, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, the way they worshipped God was work. Adam was a farmer. He wasn't a pastor. Adam and Eve, I don't think we're having like little church services all the time. He was a gardener. That's what he did. So if Eusebius was right, then God got it wrong. Because Adam didn't live that perfect life. He was living the everyday life. And so now, the everyday is infused with new purpose. You work for Jesus. You're serving the Lord Christ. Second thing, and this is what I'm really excited about this, just personally as a pastor, Hoping, hoping that you see that your work is sacred. There's, there's, no, there's no divide. Jesus gives us a new perspective in our work. So think about Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. Do you remember what that master said to the two who did well with what they were given? What did he say? Good, you know it. Say it. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, you think what you were doing here was a lot? It's nothing. Come on. I'll put you in charge of real work. The context is eternal reward and eternal judgment. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about you getting something here on earth because you did well with something little. He's saying in eternity, you will enter into the joy of your master. You accountants who balance budgets and do budgets and help people financially, oh, I'm going to put you in charge of some real money. You think you, engineers, you think you build a great bridge? Imagine the ones you're going to build in heaven. People who organize teams and build teams, I'm going to put you in charge of some real personnel. You're going to work. There will be more work in heaven, not less. Second passage, Revelation 21, 24 through 26. The nations will walk in the light of the Lamb, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory in. They will bring into it, into the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, the glory and honor of the nations. Now, there's lots of debate on what this means. It at least means that something of human creativity and human culture is going to be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be enshrined there, and it's going to be celebrated. Something of human creativity and culture will be in heaven. Heaven will be a lot more earthy than you think, and I think. In the same way, this place is a lot more heavenly than we think, too. Life is worship, and worship is life in heaven. And so Jesus and John, the writer of Revelation, who's seeing an image, a, a vision, is, is giving us a new perspective on work. In heaven, there will be glorified intelligence, glorified creativity, glorified uh, industry, glorified diligence and organization, and everything that makes for good work. That's all going to be there. In heaven, if you're an architect, you're going you're to design things perfectly. Engineers are going to build things perfectly. People who manage other people are going to do that perfectly. There will be perfect work in heaven. It will be the society that God intended creation to be at the very beginning. What's coming is not a boring eternity, but a perfect society of God's redeemed image bearers who exercise his dominion in everything. And it will be very, very good. There's a few jobs that they won't have in heaven. There's probably not going to be ER nurses. So I'm sorry if you're an ER nurse. But I'm also out of a job. Because there won't be people preaching to you in heaven. What you do now does echo and prepare you, echo into eternity and prepare you for eternity. There will be more work, not less. And the glory of the nations will come in to the new creation. It's a new creation, not a different one. It's new. What God intended at the beginning will be made as it should have been. It will be perfect. It will be good. And it will be glorious. So, when we do work now for the glory of Jesus, what we're doing is we're giving witness and testimony to his supremacy in every area of life, in every sector of society. And we're preparing ourselves for that day when we enter into the joy of our master. And we 
delight in Him, He in us, and we do what we were made to do forever. There are some reflection questions in your bulletin. And I just wanted to draw your attention to those as we close. And we're going to take communion this morning. And we use this little area for the kids. So actually our elements are over to the side. But take some time while you're meditating on, this, on the word. Use these questions that might be helpful. Or use them this week um, as you think about this. And as you prepare to come and receive the bread and the cup. So would you pray with me as we prepare for the Lord's table? Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who created us in your image to work. And thank you that you are gracious to us, patient with us. And you have made us new creations in Christ to do good works, even in our occupations despite work being hard, despite some of us not having work to do, not having a job, and we want a job, you're gracious and you're merciful. And so whatever we're doing, whether we're getting paid for it or not, when we're creating, when we're bringing things into order, it honors you, it glorifies you, because we're mirroring you. And I pray that you would uh, make this real to us today. And that when we go back to work, either tomorrow or on Tuesday, that we would have a new sense of purpose and a new sense of perspective in what we do, whatever we do, and that you would receive the glory for it. And now, Lord, as we go to partake of these elements together, we remember that you have worked on our behalf for our salvation. We thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it. And you said, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And then after supper, in the same way, you took the cup. And you said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And so when we eat this bread, and when we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that you have worked on our behalf for our salvation. So now we are freed to do good works in everything for your honor, for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.